Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. I'm Steve Phillips, and we survived Black History Month, and now we're on to Women's History Month, validating all the stripes of the rainbow one month at a time. And I guess I shouldn't complain about Black folks getting the shortest month when women, who are the majority of the population, get just one month themselves. But whatever your thoughts or feelings on whether the theme of this month is similarly marginalizing and tokenizing the population. I'm excited for our conversation today with a woman who is on the cutting edge of many of the key struggles in this country for women, for Latinos, for the LGBTQ community, for Texans, for progressives in rural areas. And also, as we mark the one-year benchmark of the quarantine, it's also very untimely that we get to talk with the leader from Texas, where the governor has just announced that they are lifting all protocols for fighting the pandemic, which to my mind is kind of like saying, well, traffic accidents are down, so now we're going to get rid of the speed limit, seatbelts, and traffic lights, but we can touch on that with our guests. And so for today's conversation, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Charlene Chang, Hi, Charlene. Do you want to introduce our guest? And are you as excited for Women's History Month as I was for Black History Month? Hey, Steve. Yeah, I, that's probably about right. I feel like when Women's History Month rolls around each year, I kind of go, oh, right, that. <laughs> and I'm trying not to be jaded about it. I mean, part of me does get jaded. Like, do we really need a special month to remind people to celebrate women, girls, women and our achievements, contributions to humanity since... Uh, uh, you know, day one. And and who needs reminding? <laughs> but, you know, that's like a whole other thing. Don't get me started. But I do have to admit that each year what crosses my radar are these wonderful posts about women's history, different figures from different parts of the world who maybe maybe I am learning something new about. There are different events, arts and cultural types of exhibits. And it is a it's kind of like with Black History Month. It's like it is what it is. And it is a like a concentrated time to lift up and focus. And I'm trying not to be jaded about it. I am trying to embrace it and think about, okay, how can I be more open and maybe do something intentional? Because I, I don't I got to be honest, I don't do anything intentional about it. I'm just like, okay, it's you know, a lot of other people are doing things. I'm here for the content, but maybe I should do something, you know, as a family, we could do something like read a book together, learn together. So that is, that's about or, how or excited share I am. A, share a podcast with your daughter yes. about oh. a great rising leader from Texas. You kidding that. me? She listens to every episode and then gives me, a, what, let's call it constructive criticism <laughs> she'll be like mom you know you need to say it like this I'm like, all right girl she's like you know you got to get you know she wants to be on so she can show us how it's done um yes i want to introduce our awesome guest today mary gonzalez so excited to speak to her have her on today mary gonzalez is a superhero state legislator in the texas house of representatives representing el paso texas she was elected in 2012 when she was just 28 years old. She was the first woman ever elected to represent El Paso. She was the second openly gay person ever elected to the Texas state legislature. She is now the chair of the new Texas House LGBTQ caucus, which means that there are now enough members of the LGBT community to have a caucus because the caucus used to be just Mary. Mary has authored several bills to improve public schools increase economic development, and support agriculture throughout the state. She's the vice chair of the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus, which is the largest grouping of Democrats 
in the legislature, and she is secretary of the House Border Caucus. Also, if all of that wasn't enough, Dr. Gonzalez received her doctoral degree in curriculum and instruction, cultural studies in education at UT Austin. And Mary has been named, among many things, one of 10 Next Generation Latinas by Latina Magazine and one of 10 newly elected politicians to watch in the nation by NBC Latino. Welcome, Mary. I'm so excited to be here, and I should totally um, shorten my bio. I'm like, okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You got got all these achievements. No shortening. Let me tell you. Yeah, you, you got you worked hard for it. You've, right. you've earned it. We don't want a yeah. short. We don't want the shortened version. We want people yeah. to know about everything you've achieved because you. Well, thank you, thank you. And it's yeah. inspiring. It's inspiring to so many women and girls out there. Well, and I w- let me just say a little uh, shameless plug. I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for Steve. So Steve, I'm I just I'm really grateful for your mentorship and friendship over these years because I would not be me if someone like you didn't believe in me when I was 28 years old running for office. So. Well, that's what we wanted to come on that, that it's really been a, a joy and a pleasure to watch your career and your, your career arc and that, you know, Susan and I were early and enthusiastic supporters. And uh, I told Susan we were doing this podcast with you and she got a big smile on her face and she's all like, tell Mary I said hi. So <laughs> we're thrilled to have you for that. And then I just wanted to share people, people's stories. So with, before I can't believe how you know, much the fastest time goes, right? So it was, it was mm-hmm. what, nine years ago, right? That mm-hmm. we, that we yep, first yep, ran yep. and we first connected. And then a little story, which I, I don't think Stacey Abrams will be upset with my telling. So Susan and I did this retreat that we worked with Eddie Morales and other people to pull together a number of different elected officials who we had been supporting and who we really believed in. Because lots of people run for office and we were like, who do we want to be supporting for the long haul? And so we pulled together a retreat and it was Mary and Michael Tubbs and David Chu from California, Stacey Abrams, and talking about, you know, people's careers and the direction and just a lot of, you know, it was really, you know, powerful gathering. And Mary was uh, roomed with <laughs> Stacey <laughs> Abrams yep. in that retreat. And it's a reflection of, Mary's personality, her warmth, her connection. So at the last day, you kind of go around and you kind of say what you got out of it. Stacy says, I have never been around somebody who, for one, does so many phone calls and says to so many people, I love you. <laughs> right? and, so, and then she says, Mary, I love you. So we love you too, Mary. And we really appreciate you being here. Well, I really, thanks again. And, that, and let me just say that retreat changed my life and here's why I that was I was in my second term and I was in Texas and I was feeling really alone as a progressive voice in the state and a lot of things hadn't changed yet and um and so it really inspired and motivated motivated me and gave me the energy to keep doing the work in a state like Texas and so um it really has sustained me and so I'm grateful for you. Mary, there's so much to talk about today, and I know our time is it's not unlimited, so we're just going to get right into it. To start, let's talk about the recent historic devastating winter storm in Texas. It's been very much on my mind, and I've been paying attention to all the coverage, as many people across the country have been. I've had so many feelings as a fellow citizen, as a mother, about the devastation and the trauma and all the loss of lives. I personally have friends who live in Texas. I know Steve has family there, and we have friends at the Texas Organizing Project, also known as TOP. Mm-hmm. So 
luckily uh, for Steve and I and, you know, our friends, uh, they have fared overall okay, but many were not so lucky. Millions still don't have safe drinking water. They have to boil their water. And like I said, there were lives lost, including the lives of children. But we know that a lot of times the hardest times bring out the best in people. Lots of folks were donating and supporting from all parts of the country, perhaps the world. Wanted to just check in with you on your personal experience, how your family and loved ones and friends fared, how they're doing now. Yeah, I mean, gosh, so much trauma has happened in the last couple of years to the people that I love the most. Like, you know, I, I talk about this, I'm on the public education committee here in Texas, and I talk about our local schools back home. And I'm like, last school year, our students and our teachers started the school year a week after the El Paso shooting. Oh, and then wow. ended the school year with a global pandemic, started the school year with wow. a global pandemic. And now we're in this middle, like a couple of months before testing, you know, energy crisis, right? It just was, it's been a, two years of trauma, right? And so I will say on the El Paso side specifically, we're really lucky that we are not in the Texas grid. We are in part of a national grid um, that has invested in winterization and weatherization. And so fortunate in that account that El Paso really did a lot better than the rest of the state. Uh, obviously, as vice chair of appropriations, I have to think about the entire state and the work that I do. And I have staff here, like I had staff who didn't have electricity for five days. I mean, that's, that's everything um, here. And so it was really difficult. And it's, and what's really awful about the situation is so much of it could have been prevented. And that's That's what's frustrating. Um, But on the other side, I will say when I was having a conversation with with one of my colleagues, she's like, Oh, well, we had to boil our water, and we didn't have water. And I'm like, I totally get that reality. Let me tell you how my people have lived for a long time. I represent 263 colonias. These are communities. Some colonias don't have electricity, period. Some colonias don't have water or wastewater infrastructure. So like, yes, what happened in Texas and a couple a couple of weeks ago was traumatic and devastating and should it have happened. Also, parallel the ways in which we have not advanced colonias to over 4,000 colonias in Texas is also devastating. Can you explain what is a colonia? Yeah, yeah. So colonias are unincorporated areas in Texas um, that are communities um, that have been established for decades. Uh, that a lot of times what happened was these were tracts of land um, that were sold to immigrant communities and they were told, hey, buy this land and we're going to put in water, we're going to put in electricity, we're going to put in wastewater and just start building your house. And then those promises were never fulfilled. And so you have what, you know, for decades, these communities have just been waiting for these essential services and this haven't arrived. And so I have been fighting for that as long as I've been in the legislature. Luckily, we had a big victory last session where I was able to get $250 million in bond money to start doing some continued work. But there's 4,000 colonias in Texas. And about six years ago, the governor lied item vetoed the colonia ombudsman that was tracking really the status of these colonias from the budget. So we don't even have a tracking mechanism anymore to really see where we're at. But the point of the matter is, is you know, no Texan, whether it's through an Arctic storm or whether it's because where they live, should have the reality where they can't have access to essential services like electricity or water or wastewater, you know, like all of these things can be prevented. So are, are there lessons from this in terms of, well, for Texas, for energy supply in general, and know that they were trying to attack the wind turbines as the problem, so that mm-hmm. the conservatives were. So like, are there lessons about 
what we should be doing in the future in order to provide energy for people in general, and also particularly in, this, in terms of the context of this era of, of climate change? Oh my gosh. I mean, first of all, we have to be able to have the conversation on climate change. Like, I'll give an example. I had a bill last session to ask for um, a study to, from AM to, to, to investigate the cost of climate preparedness for the state of Texas, something that would have helped in this moment in time, right? Mm-hmm. And it didn't even get a hearing. We wow. can't even talk about climate change here in the Capitol. So first and foremost, let's talk about it. Let's then get prepared for it. And let's start to think of proactively about the investments the state has to make. And sometimes that requires the state making some very difficult decisions, telling private industries, you need to do this. And that Texas has been very hesitant to do any of that. And if we don't do that work, we're going to find ourselves here again. Who knows? Maybe even as close as next year. Wow. So is there renewable sources of energy that there are being that are part of the mix there? Oh, yeah. I mean, Texas has solar, wind. I mean, we have some really vibrant and growing um, renewable energy sources here. And, and what's sad is they're getting blamed a lot, but it was a, it was not just one person's fault. It was a failure on so many different and so many different spaces. And so ultimately, we know that there's a lot of work to be done. And and we know that part of the reason we were in this situation is because we didn't do the necessary investment on the front end that we had already been warned about. I remember being a freshman and getting briefed and saying our electrical grid is outdated and not prepared to handle the serious issues for a state that is growing as fast as Texas. And that became a reality a couple of weeks ago. Well, it, that's one thing I want to end up kind of pull back and look at in terms of Texas's ideology and its politics, because it does seem like this this whole concept about not being part of the national grid, right? There's this conservative, defiant, go-it-alone mm-hmm. mentality, which is kind of core to the identity. We're seeing it now with the, the pandemic restrictions. But it's, I'm actually working, I don't think I told you this, but I'm working on another book and that there was a title, which I thought initially was metaphorical, it turns out to be quite accurate of how we win the Civil War and how people have not, the, really the Confederates and their successors have never stopped fighting the Civil War. And so this Texas piece, people don't, I think a lot of people really realize this, Texas was created because the Americans who were in Texas wanted to be able to keep slaves. And so they, that's why they wanted to be, because the Mexicans were saying, no, you can't have the whole people in slavery. And they're like, well, we're going to go to create a revolution, create our own state. And so this whole individualized conservative mindset goes back a long time. You say we have it now with the energy grid, with the pandemic, refusal to do uh, Medicaid expansion. But then here you are as a progressive within Texas. Is that conservative ideology who Texas is? And is there a constituency for more progressive politics that really believes that there should be justice and equality and that we are all in this together? What a fascinating question. So you're going to hate this answer, Steve. Um, It is more complex than that. Because I'm like, I'm a diehard Texan. Like I am like as Texas as you can like imagine. I ride my horses every weekend. I play with goats. There's a, there was a funny quote on paper that they call me Miss Congeniality who can palpate a cow, right? Like, so let me (laughs) just say like, I, I, I love Texas, um, 
personality and I love our, our spirit of independence. And so, but that, but that does not make me any less progressive, right? If anything, I think the values of Texas align really well with progressive politics. I think the problem is, is the loudest voice or the caricature of what Texas is dominates the discourse of our state, right? So, so the answer is, yes, we are this independent wild, wild west sometimes. And yes, we have the space and the energy and the growing progressive movement that is super exciting. And, and I think you can see that through the recently elected folks in the legislature. So I'll give an example and see if we're gonna be, I don't know, there are 150 state reps in Texas. We represent each about 200,000 people. I am number 46 in seniority. That means there's 100 people behind me who came in after me. The oh. folks who came in after me, like I remember being, like I mentioned earlier, being alone and feeling alone. I no longer feel alone as a progressive voice. In fact, mm. I feel motivated and inspired. And even when I'm like, I've been at this for 10 years, like they're like, well, we're we just got here, so let's keep going. And I'm like, mm. okay. So actually, I and, and you see you see these shifts. And while we haven't had the electoral gains, and that's mostly because of redistricting, um, because it takes 10 times the effort for us to win a seat. Um, because of the gerrymandering that exists in Texas, there is so much opportunity for the growth. And think about who we have, right? Like my very best friend is Congressman Castro, who, in, I mean, God, look at what he's doing in D.C. I think he's amazing and brilliant. Yeah. And he's a, he's one of the future leaders for statewide work here. And so, so yeah, so it's all of the above, all of the above. So how have it been for you coming out of El Paso, the first woman, only LGBTQ person. So that was all very much part of your identity in communities which had not elected folks like that before. So how have you been successful appealing mm. to those voters? So, yeah. So, God, so much has changed. I tell people, you know, when I decided to run for office, I was 28 years old, you know, pan, queer, LGBTQ identified former feminist studies professor in a district that had never even elected a woman, never elected a young person. The state had never elected an openly LGBTQ woman. Like it was all these glass ceilings that I had to be broken. And I told people, and this was before marriage equality, right? Like it's a whole mm. different world that we live in now. So here's what I will say. What I appreciate about the diversification that has happened over the last 10 years is the ways in which it has allowed me to be more humanized in the work that I'm doing. So I remember feeling the first session like my identity is defined who how people saw me and the work I wanted to do now the identities are part of who I am but not defining my work mm -hmm. and so it's more authentically who who people can see a holistic version of me and my favorite story I get asked this I do a lot of talks for you know the community college back home and students always ask me well Mary what are you most proud of and I say, there's, I'm an academic, right? So I said, that, well, there's a practical and a theoretical, right? So the practical is I'm really proud of working to create awareness and practical solutions for colonias because a lot, nobody's doing that work, right? Um, on, the, on the flip side, the theoretical, I'm proud of really maintaining and a, being able to be the most authentic version of myself. I remember when I got in, there was a lot of pressure to conform to the ways in which power wanted me to act and wanted me to be in the ways in which I should say and do this, right? And I was like, no, you know, I'm just gonna kind of be myself. And so in the beginning, I really wasn't given leadership opportunities because people were really scared of me in some ways. Now, five terms later, vice chair of appropriations, which means I'm the second in charge of a $260 billion budget. Texas is the ninth largest economy in the world. 
and I never had to be a different version of myself. I've shown how you can be authentic and be honest and do this work and still move up politically. It might take a little longer, but here we are, right? And I, and I think that's important to model. And one of my mentors is a Republican. Uh, he's no longer serving. And a reporter asked him, because one day we were hanging out, he's like, why are you and Mary are such weird friends? And he said, well, yeah, because she's honest, she's hardworking, and she's really smart. And the values that I've been able to demonstrate here um, in the Capitol in Texas have helped me both be myself and do the work for the most vulnerable and marginalized communities in Texas. And so, um, yeah. <laughs> this is why I was like setting up your bio. I was like, this woman's a superhero. <laughs> and it really, I mean, you're just um, inspiring me so much with just talking about your journey. I just want to jump in here and ask you a bit about the Latino vote. Uh, there's been a lot of post-election day talk, post-2020 um, election cycle, talk about Trump's strength with the Latino population, especially on the border where you're from. <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you think that analysis is correct, what should Democrats do to strengthen support among Latinos? Wow. So, you know, my dissertation was an intersectionality. So I like to think about things in very complex ways. Um, so I'm going to say it's a little bit more complex. I think the national discourse about Latinos on the border um, supporting Trump um, really doesn't get to the realities of what's happening on the border. So I, I think that d Democrats and Latinos on the border still were overwhelmingly supporting Biden. I think there was just some dynamics that they point to to say it's this is a blanket situation that's not true I'll, okay confession those of you who don't follow me on social media my father is a republican and so um, we have these giant fights and he's like how are you my daughter and i'm like <laughs> i'm like you made me and so um uh alfred, right? yeah alfred yeah and so it, and it's fascinating because um my father, my dad's, my dad's a single father, and he um, raised me since he was ten. And we're next door neighbors, best friends, and he's my most difficult and favorite constituent. And so here's where I think a lot was going to change in Texas, because there's a lot of people on that verge of coming back or being part of the Democratic Party. And I think Biden just really has to demonstrate effectiveness. I think that Trump was really good for some communities saying like, well, forget the rhetoric. And I'll give an example, like my dad's not on Twitter, right? He's not on social media, but he would still somehow get the message that Trump was effective somehow, but he didn't get the other things that he was saying because he's not there, right? And so, so I think what, we just have to demonstrate that when we're in power, we get things done in a way that changes people's lives, our daily lives. And I think we're, I think we're starting to do that. I think we're on the right path and I think we're going to continue to bring people over. And I think we've done that a lot in Texas. Do you know if there are plans as the COVID relief bill rolls out, which is made mm -hmm. possible by our friend Stacey Abrams laying the groundwork for the Democrats to win the Georgia seats and flip the Senate, mm -hmm. um, but are there plans to communicate to people that this is all happening because the Democrats are actually in power? You know, that's a great question. So this is okay. A lot of folks come into Texas and invest in our elections and then leave, right? Mm -hmm. And what we really need is continued and long-term investment in building a communication infrastructure that recognizes diverse communities, right? And what a lot of times folks do is they come in and do some work in Dallas, do some work in Houston, and like kind of forget the rest of Texas. And I think it's a really great opportunity because we we are doing all the right things, but if we're not communicating that in ways that is really getting to the folks all over the state, 
then it's just never really going to create the long-term sustained institutional change we're thinking about. Um, so the answer is, I don't think we're there yet because I think people come in, invest, and then leave. But I think we can build that. And I think we have the foundational knowledge to know what we need to do. Yeah. I wanted to ask on the other aspect, I think, in terms of what's happening. Because like my my analysis of the election, I think that people are also, well, I don't know if it's intersectionality or nuance or whatnot, but there's, <laughs> they are too quick to draw these facile conclusions. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. well, Texas went to Trump again, so, you know, so it's still conservative. Biden got more votes in Texas than Trump got in Texas in 2016. So in terms of the progress that's being made, that I see a lot of things that are actually very encouraging in that regard. But Trump still managed to pull out every single person who was really concerned about mm-hmm. uh, the demographic changes in the country, right? The, uh, Joy Reid has this term of demographic panic. Mm-hmm. So that's what people are missing that too, because it's like Trump did lose votes. I and mean, Ron Brownstein documents this very well, particularly in places like Texas, in the suburban areas around the urban centers, he lost support but still increased his overall numbers. So he had this huge surge. And I think a lot of that's tied to the this what Joyce calls this demographic panic around the fear of the demographic changes. And I think that that underlines this whole rise, frankly, in domestic terrorism that's happening in this country, which has been documented and connected to the Obama's election in terms of their this proliferation. So you have experienced this firsthand in El Paso. So I wonder if you could remind our listeners around what happened with the, with the El Paso attack what we understand around why and then how you guys have tried to appeal since that occurred. Gosh, you know, the day of the El Paso attack was one of the, was was the hardest day of my legislative career and probably of even my life. Like it was just devastating. And what I, what people don't realize that who aren't from El Paso is that we had been just dealing with so much. So um, we had just gotten back from session and I was like, and, and so for those of you who don't know, I was in session trying to finish my PhD and my dissertation. So like was super exhausted when session ended, told myself, I'm going to take a 30 day like recharge, mental recharge, emotional recharge moment. And, but I couldn't because that was when there were 700, 800 kids in the uh, border patrol detention centers. And I was in my district. So that was happening. The immigrant rhetoric was heightening. And then just a few months later was a shooting. And so and what people in El Paso were particularly feeling is that, again, this really happened because our leaders, our national leaders, Trump specifically, was creating this hostile environment for people of color. So there, so the election of Biden specifically for our community has been, I think, re- has been really healing um, mm-hmm. because I always tell people if Trump would have gotten reelected after the El Paso shooting, there's so many folks who feel like his rhetoric perpetuated really what happened. And so we are being able to at least move on a little bit. I will say what's really sad, though, is that when after the shooting, the governor, lieutenant governor came to El Paso and made promises to our community about what they would do around gun reform or around other other areas of reform to make sure this never happened again. And they're just not going to probably honor that promise. And so that's hard for our community in this moment in time. Well, I want to I follow up on that in terms of looking at, so next year, 2022 is a uh, election year, right? Governor's mm-hmm. up, Lieutenant Governor, your other statewide offices. So you have that, you've had this whole, you know, the storm and then the, to the extent that it was lack of foresight in that regard, 
And then you had somebody was putting on Twitter about the uh, a Mexican father went across the border to get warm water for his family in terms of Ted Cruz, right? Fleeing. <laughs> right. Oh, so, Ted Cruz, why? <laughs> seriously. So looking, what's your sense of the potential for, you're saying then that the governor made these promises and didn't you know, deliver in terms of the, the response to the terrorist attack in, in El Paso. Do you think there's going to be some level of accountability or what's your assessment of the potential for both those statewide offices, but also for the House, right? We were just nine seats away from being able to flip the Texas State House, right? Yeah, I always still feel we have an opportunity to flip the State House. I just feel we need a some long-term engagement. B, I think that I think that we really need to be able to to listen closer to the voices on the ground telling us what the what the issues are, right? And C, as far as like statewide opportunities, if we don't have good candidates, we're never going to win. The problem is it's hard to get good candidates because they're like, well, am I going to do this like mission where I may not win and could potentially lose a Senate seat or um, a House seat or a congressional seat? And so um, I think we, we're always this close and considering all that's happened with COVID, you know, with the taking away the mask mandate, with the shooting, this, um, not even honoring the victims, like there's so much there. But if we don't have people who are able to connect with folks and really talk about what's happening, then we're just never going to be able to win. But but God, we could if we're the right people ran. So I'm going to start a, you know, recruit Julian Castro campaign to run for statewide office because I think he could do it. Yeah, he's he's certainly, I thought, really uh, emerged in a very impressive way in his president. Uh, uh, oh, completely. Campaign, so. Like, I remember people were telling me like, oh, Julian's not going to get that far. And he got so much farther than people thought he was going to get. I mean, just really did such a phenomenal job. I'm, pr- I'm proud of him and grateful for his le- friendship and leadership. Yeah, no, he was such, such an important voice as well yeah. in terms of national politics. And he was I, actually like pausing and, and I was showing Susan, I was like, listen to this, where he did the, he would, you know, talk about the names of the people who had been killed, uh, unarmed people of color by police and honoring them and r- just rattling off their names and lifting them up. It was just very, you know, moving and compelling. And, to have and he did it in sincere them. and yes. authentic ways. Mm-hmm. Now, I like, I could talk all day long about that man. So <laughs> before we go, I just wanted to ask you, Mary, I have been just thinking about what you said about you and your dad. And I am like obsessed with you guys' story. I just want some filmmaker to make a film about Mary and her dad, Mary, this LGBTQ uh, lawmaker, progressive, progressive in Texas with her neighbor, her Republican dad. And I was wondering if it was a movie, who would you cast as yourself and your dad? Oh, well, I mean... That's actually a phenomenal question. Uh, gosh, so my dad is like a grouchy old cowboy. We're we're, <laughs> we're the same people. Like I, we're so funny. We eat at the same restaurant every Sunday, and we order the same thing for the same waitress. And we just like grumpy old cowboys sitting together. Um, I'm just stuck in a young Latina body. And so um, I would I would hope. Gosh, I'd hope Salma Hayek would play me because gosh, she's gorgeous. I mean, she's a, I don't <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't look like her, but damn, like that would make my life. And uh, who, who is a grouchy old cowboy that oh gosh well, I'm trying to think, think about I think about that you're saying about Selma Hayek paying you there was this movie um Hurricane Carter about this black boxer and then Denzel Washington played the person Hurricane Carter's a biography 
And then they had an interview with it was Denzel and the uh, you know the actual person, Hurricane. Mm-hmm. And then he's the Hurricane says, I had no idea I was so good looking until I saw <laughs> Denzel playing me. There you go. So my dad doesn't look like him, but just thinking of my my dad and I used to watch Lonesome Dove when I was growing up. And so Robert Duvall played one of the cowboys and so i would pick him to play my dad nice well there you go okay listeners who are filmmakers it's all yours <laughs> <laughs> i'm telling you it's it's a story there and so oh i bet one day if you just want to unpack all the stories of mary and alfred i'm telling you y'all would laugh all day long <laughs> but i will say thank you for for highlighting what's happening in texas i think uh sometimes uh, the national stories about texas don't tell the whole picture. And I'm really glad that y'all are asking some really critical questions because Texas has a potential to make national impact, but we're only going to do that if we start to look at it beyond what the national landscape is saying about our state. And so thank you for asking the questions. Uh, and I just love your passion. And, you know, I, I met you a number of years ago and just was so delighted to get to spend time with you. And you're just so awesome to be around. I just want to f- ask you also as a mom of a little girl who uh, looks up to young women like you, like, how did you find the confidence and how did you manage to stay viable as a progressive Latina? Oh my God. I love that question. So the confidence, I mean, um, obviously my dad gave me a lot of confidence. I remember we would watch Meet the Press and I was 11 years old and he asked me, so what'd you think? And I'm like, dad, I'm 11. He's like, well, you have a brain. <laughs> He's like, you have a brain, don't you? And I'm like, okay. So at that point, the standards are really high to have that's this awesome. like uh, dialogue with my dad really young. Um, that's why I said, he. I'm like, you made me. So you can't be upset that I'm a Democrat. But that, and I, I know being an academic, really gave me a lot of the tools to be like, I approach being a legislator the way I approach being a professor. So, okay, fine. You don't agree with me now, but I'm going to plant the seeds. And so at some point you'll, you'll agree with me. So I'll tell a really quick story. My, one of my really good friends here in the legislature is, um, a Republican guy here. And when we first came in, he filed like 10 anti-LGBTQ bills, Wow. 10. Whoa. Last session, he put in LGBTQ protections in one of oh, his bills. Wow. And I mean, he's still voting bad. Let's not give him all the credit. <laughs> but but somebody asked him, well, why did you do that? He's like, well, Mary Gonzalez is my best friend. Oh my and gosh. so um, I think the, the ability and the lens to do this work in a long-term way stems from my academic background and the, and the people who I've read, like Gloria Anzalua, um, Sherry Moraga, um, Angela Davis, Bell Hooks, um, Paolo Freddy, like all of these writers who really created the, the theoretical imagination that allowed me to be practical in the political work um, and, and, and patient even sometimes. It is just... Um, that has really shaped me. And, and and when I felt alone, it was those books and just people like y'all who um, gave me the strength and inspiration. And now, and now like, I mean, I, I can't, I wrote this on my Facebook a few weeks ago when I was appointed vice chair of appropriations. Never in my wildest dreams that I think someone like me would be vice chair of appropriations. Like maybe people don't understand how a big deal that is, which is a giant deal in Texas. And I just, sometimes it just feels surreal. And so I guess what I would tell your daughter is find good books, find good people. And then you could, I think, could really do anything in the world. Yeah, well, we're just super proud, Mary, of the what you've been able to do, your journey, you're sticking with it, you're moving to these positions of influence. And we are 
hopeful about the future of Texas and your continued leadership in it once the, <laughs> the, the, we flip the state house and you become a leader of the majority within there. So thank you so much for all of what you're doing. Well, thank you all for your friendship and for what you all are doing too. All right. All right, so that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow our special guest, Mary Gonzalez, on Twitter at Rep Mary Gonzalez. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy in Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or signing up for our mailing list at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to this podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. I'd like to thank Joyce in New York for her recent rating. We really appreciate it. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, putting on my Texas draw, keep the faith, <laughs> y'all.